So how many of you guys here this morning are a part of a Facebook group? You guys know what I'm talking about, some of you? Some of the younger people are obviously a part of a Facebook group. But on Facebook, you can, you can join these groups. Really, there's probably a group for just about anything. Things that you can kind of, you know, uh, come together with people around the country on something. Uh, whatever it is. I, I recently joined a, a Facebook group called Coffee and Calvinism. <laughs> and Philip Rees uh, is a part of that group, and he actually invited me to be a member of this group. Now, if you are a member of this group, you would see this description on the front of this group page. It says this, uh, Coffee and Calvinism, it's a place for the discussion of coffee, brewing, roasting, and equipment to the glory of God. All are welcome, but we are, generally speaking, a Calvinistic and confessional group. All topics of discussion are welcome, but discussions that typically become divisive are best left to the multitude of other reform groups. Consider this group your quiet coffee shop where you get to enjoy and learn about coffee alongside other Reformed coffee lovers. So you get a little glimpse at me a little. And, and Phil, we, we like coffee. Uh, and we're Calvinists. Uh, there's been a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of new members in this group lately. Um, and so one of the admins of the group actually put a post out to remind us new members of what this group is all about. He goes, first of all, let me point out that we all have hobbies that we geek out about. For those of us who started this group, it's coffee. We seriously geek out over coffee. Specifically, we geek out over specialty coffee. This includes education and field advancement, brewing techniques, roasting equipment, and all other matters, specialty coffee. He goes, this group was intended as a platform for theologically like-minded individuals to geek out over specialty coffee together and to share and enlighten those who would like to learn more about specialty coffee. He goes, if you are someone who doesn't know what I mean by specialty coffee and has no interest in craft home brewing or coffee education, or if you perceive this level of interest as snobby, this may not be the group for you. Putting it frank, it's just a plain old waste of your time. If you fall into the above category, but you are interested in diving into specialty coffee, please ask questions. We are here to share our knowledge and enjoy the craft at any level. However, if you are here to brag about your Keurig and mock our passion... This is your warning. You will be removed from the group. So that's Coffee and Calvinism. That's the group that I recently joined. Um, and, and here's the point. I, I read all that. Just, you know, there's obviously a point to it. And the point is this. As the body of Christ, united in Christ, and members of Christ's church, we too have defining characteristics and rules that we are governed by. So... Those of us who gather in the church on a Sunday morning, who are a part of the church, we obviously have defining characteristics, things that we can unite over, like coffee. <laughs> so our text this morning is Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Just to give you a little bit of some context of where we're at in the book of Ephesians, because we're just diving into the middle right now. Uh, Paul has just spent three chapters explaining the doctrine and the theology of the Christian faith. So he's just got done telling this Ephesian church in, in these first three chapters about uh, uh, who God is, who they are as people, and how God has saved us. And indeed, some of the most glorious truths in all of Scripture are found in these first few chapters of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 is really one of the most amazing chapters in all of the Bible. And so he's just told the Ephesians all of these wonderful truths about God. But now he transitions into practical living. Now, this is how you live according to these truths. And this is really how Paul does a lot of his letters. If you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's style, he'll start his letter with doctrine and truths and theology and facts, and then he'll transition to practical living. So think about the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters are doctrine, and a lot of it, and some of the best doctrine in all the Bible. And then the last five chapters are practical living. And you, you usually can tell the switch between the doctrine and the practical living with the word therefore. And so we see this word therefore at the very beginning of chapter 12 of Romans. And this is the same with the book of Galatians. The first four chapters are Truths and facts and doctrine and theology. And then the last two chapters are, again, practical living. And this is how you live in light of these truths. So the same is true with Ephesians. 
The first three chapters have been doctrine. And now we see a therefore in the very first verse, really the second word, I therefore, of chapter 4. There's a transition here into practical living. And the principle is this. This is why Paul has been doing this, or does this in almost all of his epistles. And the principle is this. You cannot live an obedient Christian life apart from knowing correct and true doctrine. The two are inseparable. And thus, if you set aside true doctrine, you set aside pure living. If you want to live a holy, pure, obedient life to Christ, you have to know your Bible. You have to be consumed with it. You have to study it and meditate on it and feed on it. For those of you, a few of you, were at my second seminary sermon at Living Hope Baptist Church on Sunday evenings, you might remember this, uh, this passage in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. It says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The same thing. Paul just condenses it into one verse. He's saying, be filled with the knowledge of his will. Really, which, what he's saying is be filled with the truths of Scripture. Be filled with the Scriptures. Know the Scriptures. Know it. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So now let's actually read our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It says this. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Very similar language, isn't it? That we just saw in Colossians. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Almost the same exact words. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, as we saw in Colossians chapter 1. So let's actually just start working our way through this text this morning. Again, we see this word, therefore, it's a connection from everything that came before to now. And Paul says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. We won't spend much time on that at all. Basically, he's saying is that there is a cost to becoming a Christian. And for Paul, that cost at this point in time was that he was in prison. The cost of being a Christian is imprisonment. For him, at least. But the principle is the same. There's a cost for becoming a Christian. But then he says... I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So let's look at this word, walk. Paul uses this word all over his epistles. If you were to read through Paul's epistles, you would see this word walk all over the place. Indeed, he used it in Colossians 1. And really what walk means is it's, it's a, the Christian life. Live your life. Live your Christian life. Walk this way. It's a continual disposition. It, he means to say, have every aspect of your life, every moment of your life, be worthy of, of what? What does the text say? Of the calling to which you have been called. And what does that mean? Why not simply say, walk in a manner worthy of your calling? Why does he have a redundancy in the word call? Why does he say of the calling to which you have been called? Well, let's break it down a little bit so we can grasp what Paul is trying to say here because it's very significant. So what does it mean to be called, first of all? The term called in Scripture is often in reference to our conversion. And so when we are saved through the gospel message, we are called out of darkness into light. We are called from Death to life with 
the gospel message. It's really the moment when the Holy Spirit comes into us and regenerates us and makes us alive in Christ. When we are called, we are given a new heart, a new will, new desires, new emotions, a new affection for Christ. We are called by Christ through the gospel message. And that call, the technical term for it is called the effectual call. It should make sense because the effectual call is when the gospel comes to us and affects us. It changes us. That is the call that Paul is talking about here. Actually, the second use, the called word of the calling to which you have been called. So the effectual call is the called word. So now what about the word calling? Now, it might be a little bit easier to understand if we replace the word calling with salvation. They're somewhat synonymous. So we could say, walk in a manner worthy of the salvation to which you have been saved. So really the question is, what is this calling or salvation that we have been called to or saved for? Well, if we would have already read the first three chapters of Ephesians, we would know the answer to this. But because we're just diving in at chapter 4, we, we kind of miss some of that stuff. So we're actually going to go back and read the first three chapters. <laughs> no, we're just going to dive in at chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. So we've been called, we've been saved. But now, what have we been saved for? What have we been called for? What is this calling, this present reality that we're living out? We'll see here in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. It says this, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So hopefully maybe you saw some things pop out to you of what we've been called Two, what is it? Well, we've been called to be holy and blameless before him. Look at that, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We have been called to this calling of being holy. It says in love, he predestined us for adoption. We've been called to be adopted into the family of God. We've been called to the praise of his glorious grace. That God would get all the glory. And at the very end, we've been called so that God may unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's the calling. We've been called to this. We've been saved for these things. Now we are told to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Now the word worthy more literally means balanced. Walk in a way that's balanced to this calling. Imagine a scale. Here you have this this heavy calling to be holy and blameless before the infinite eternal God. To glorify God. To be adopted into the family of God. This weighty calling. And we're supposed to live in a way that balances that out. That's incredible. I don't even know what to say about it. We're supposed to live our lives right now that balances out this heavy, this weighty, this glorious of a calling? We don't even understand. It says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do we even know what that means? We get grains of it in the scripture, but it again is almost beyond comprehension. We are supposed to live in a way to balance that out. 
Walk in a manner worthy of that calling. The charge is incredible. It is incredible. So, what we're going to do with the rest of our text is we're going to look at five defining elements of your worthy walk as a member of Christ's church. Five defining elements of your worthy walk as a member of Christ's church. So, we've been in Acts 2, and this sermon, it's not supposed to be uh, unrelated to what we've been looking at for the past couple of months. It should be related. We are about to roll out membership here in a couple months. We're going to have our baptism service in, in, in September, right about on our first year uh, birthday as a church. And so we're going to be members of this church. And we are already united in the body of Christ, if you are a believer here. And so what are these characteristics, these defining characteristics to this group that we're in, this body that we're in? That's what we're going to look at. And the first one is this. Your walk must be humble. So if you look at verse 2 in your Bible with me. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. And this is extremely fundamental to being a Christian. Extremely. There's a reason why Paul put it first in his list, in his ordering here. It is foundational. We must be humble. Consider what Jesus did. Paul explains it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The God of the universe, the one who created all things, who spoke things, all things into existence from nothing, him, Jesus Christ, he humbled himself so much that he took on the form of a man. He was born into this world as a baby. And he went to the cross willingly. The most shameful of deaths. Our king, our lord, our creator, our sustainer. All bloody and beaten drug a wood cross through the streets of Jerusalem. Out to Calvary. To pay for our sin. Talk about humility. The same God who everybody who was around him in that moment was sustaining their life. Indeed, Jesus sustained the lives of all those who put him to death on the cross while they did it. And he did it humbly. So we are to be humble. Consider the definition of humility that C.S. Lewis gives in Mere Christianity. Maybe you've read the book. It's a wonderful book. It's on his chapter on, on pride. And obviously, the opposite of humility is pride. He says this, If I were to meet a truly humble person, I would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually self-obsessed. The thing is, or the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humbled person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or a little thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. I'll say that again. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Now we also have to be humble in knowledge. Again, we can be prideful about what we think we know and we're born into this world. I'm 24. Some of you are older. And we think we know quite a bit. We think we know quite a bit about reality. We think we know quite a bit about how God operates in the world. But our knowledge has to be humbled. Our understanding has to be humbled. And 
that takes place by going into the scriptures. And we think we have an understanding of how, how the world works. And then we go into the scriptures and we see how it actually works. What is actually real. How God has actually saved us. Who he actually is. And we have to have our minds renewed and humbled underneath and in the scriptures. And when we go to the scriptures, we encounter God. This is where we encounter God in the scriptures. And to have an encounter with God is by definition to be humbled. You cannot stand in the presence of God and be prideful. And those who stood in the presence of God they said they were as though they were dead. I am undone. I can't stand. I am nothing. So, all that to say, we as members of Christ's church are called to walk this worthy walk. We must walk in humility. So let's look at our second defining element of your worthy walk as a member of Christ's church. And that is that your walk must be gentle. We're in verse 2 again. It says, with all humility and gentleness. Now this is a easily misunderstood fruit of the Christian. Our text really tells us that gentleness comes from humility. There is an order here for a reason. When we're humble, then we're gentle. There's a progression. There's an order. They're very closely related. Another way that you can define gentleness is meekness. And sometimes people use meekness as a synonym for humility. So they're very close. But the question is, does this mean that you should be soft and passive, lacking courage? Is that what it means to be gentle? Does it mean to be timid? Not in the slightest. The Greek word that we translate gentleness is actually best defined as mild-spirited or self-controlled. It is the opposite of vindictiveness or vengeance. The gentle person is not seeking vengeance. They have themselves under control. Now the word in the Greek, back in the ancient literature, was also used for tamed animals. They were gentle. If the animal is tamed, it's gentle. So think of a tamed lion. A gentle lion. It doesn't mean that they don't still have their power and their strength and their might. They have it. But they've been tamed. And they are now under the control of their master. So we, as Christians, if we're gentle, it means we're under the control of our master, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are controlled. We are self-controlled. Now, all Christians are to be gentle and meek, but our perception is that women are more gentle than men. Uh, so sometimes we think it's harder for a man to be gentle. Indeed, we look at a man and God has given him strength and muscles, testosterone. Sometimes this can make it hard to be gentle. But why has God given us strength and muscles and things like that? Well, to fight, to work hard, to protect the family. Certainly to protect those who are weak. Now, a man who is gentle knows how to control his strength. He's not picking fights. And we see this a lot with, with people who actually have some skill in mixed martial arts or they're UFC fighters or whatever. A lot of times, they're not the ones picking fights. It's always the person that's not gentle, that really doesn't have much skill, that's picking the fights. So the gentle man has his... Self under control, his emotions under control. He's not seeking vengeance. He's not picking fights. But when true evil comes knocking at his door, he's ready to be strong and courageous for others, not himself. So, all that to say, we are to be gentle. All of us are to be gentle. But gentleness does not mean that we're not courageous, that we're not fighting against evil. But now, what is our third defining element to your walk? Worthy walk as a member of Christ's church. And that is that your walk must be patient. Again, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. Now patience means to be long-tempered. So it's very, again, similar to gentleness. Again, a progression. Humility to gentleness. 
from gentleness to patience, long-tempered. It means you can handle people who aren't humble and gentle. You can be patient with them. You are patient with people that can't control their emotions and get angry and want to seek vengeance. You are patient with them. You are long-tempered with them. You don't lose it. We're also to be patient in circumstances that are hard and full of suffering. Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's obviously being patient. Here he's locked up, and he's patiently enduring this suffering. Now we know that we still are being patient when we still are joyful. When we lose our joy, it's likely our patience is gone. Patience also means that you don't quit. When you quit, you've lost your patience. And usually the sign of that is that you sin. You might blow up, freak out in anger, lose your emotions. Patience again, a long-tempered. You're not quitting, you're enduring, you're staying true. Now the example in church history that comes to my mind of long Suffering, patience, is of Charles Simeon. Is, has anybody in here heard of Charles Simeon? No one? <laughs> uh, he's, he's a very famous preacher in England, uh, an Anglican pastor. Uh, he was born in 1759. He was really known for his expository preaching. And that's what we do here at Harvest Plains. Born in 1759, died in 1836. In 1782, he was appointed the pastor of a church called Trinity Church in Cambridge. Um, and amazingly, he served that, at that church for 54 years, which is incredible. The only man that I can really think of right now alive who is still serving over 50 years in, at one church is John MacArthur. I'm sure there's others that we don't know of, but half of a century of serving at one church is really incredible. Really incredible. Only the men who are patient can do that. Now I say amazingly, amazingly he served at this church for 54 years because... His congregation was somewhat hard to deal with. So the way that the Anglican church is set up is there's a hierarchy. There's a bishop over a bunch of churches. And if a church needs a new pastor, the bishop will choose the pastor and assign it to a church. So it's not like the, the congregation of a church uh, you know, puts out a job description and, and hires a pastor and chooses a pastor. No, the bishop chooses for the church. And so Charles Simeon was assigned to Trinity Church. But the congregation didn't want him. And so what did they do? They kept him from preaching. They kept him from coming into his, his own church that he's been assigned to and preaching the word of God. And they got somebody else that they wanted. And we'll have him preach. And so that went on for five years. And Simeon patiently endured this. And when that guy, the guy that they grabbed and had fill in the pulpit... He left five years later. So you think, oh, well, maybe now they'll warm up to Simeon and they'll let him preach at his own church. No, they found another guy. <laughs> that happened for another seven years. And they would lock Simeon. That Well, I'll just start another service a little bit later in the day. You know, it won't bother anybody. They can have their service and their preacher. And anybody who wants to come to the service that I'm going to start, they can come. No, they locked the door. And then he got the lock picked and then they kicked him out. <laughs> and then, if you know anything about, well, you probably don't, but pews during that time were called box pews. And so there's actually a door that you had to unlock to get into the pew. And so what did they do? They started to lock the pew doors so that people wouldn't have a place to sit if Simeon wanted to preach. And then he actually got a, a, a legal document saying that it was against the law for them to lock the pew doors of Charles Simeon's church. But he never whipped it out. He never used it. He patiently endured. He was patient with this congregation for 12 years. He even put chairs in the aisles when they locked the pew doors and they threw all the chairs out, the, the, the door, or out of the church. 12 years doing this. That is patience. And then he served that church for 54 years and has gone down in history as one of the most faithful preachers of God's word ever. Amazing. That is the patience that we are to have, but more so we are to have the patience of God. God has endured us and our sin and our stupidity and our foolishness. Patience endures us. 
loves us. It's incredible. I think definitely it leaves me in an interesting spot. Do I, am I patient like that? When I go 12 years, think about your own life. Are you patient with the people in your own life that make you mad and just, oh man, they're just, they're so prideful and not gentle. We're called to be patient with them. So, now as we move to the end of verse 2, we see the fourth defining element of your worthy walk as a member of Christ's church. And that is that your walk must be loving. It says, bearing with one another in love. Again, a progression, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Really what it's saying is patiently love our brothers and our sisters. Bear with them in love. It's really this, this agape love, this unconditional love. Because when you bear with somebody, with one another in love, it really is implying that this person is hard to love. You're bearing with them. But love them nonetheless. Love them like Christ loved his church. That when we were his enemies, he still loved us. Think about what Paul says in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Listen to the words. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, while we hated God, while everything that we did in life was in opposition to God, our creator, Christ shows his love for us in this. He died for us and took our sins on himself. That is an unconditional love. We offer nothing in return. All that we have is filthy rags. And Christ loved us so much that he died for us. That is the love that we should have that defines our church. We should love each other like that. Now, we could labor these elements for hours. But we're going to move to our fifth defining element of your worthy walk as a member of Christ's church. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time in this point. And in fact, verses 3 through 6 are all on just this one element. And that is that your walk must be in unity. Your walk must be in unity. So read with me verses 3 through 6. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All this has to do with unity. But now there's a lot of misunderstanding around unity. We hear it all the time. We hear it all the time. We need to be united. We need unity. We hear it all the time. We hear it in the church. We hear it outside of the church. We hear it in a country. We hear it everywhere. We need to be united. But we have to understand what it means to be united biblically. Now, again, if we follow the progression of our text, the ultimate product of humility, gentleness, patience, and love is a diligence or a zeal to maintain unity. Now, look at the wording of our text. Eager to maintain the unity. What what does it not say? It doesn't say be eager to create the unity. No, it doesn't say create unity. It says maintain unity. It's already something that exists. It's already something that's true of us as the body of Christ. We already are united. We already have it. We possess it. It's ours. We are united. It's a truth. It's a fact. Now maintain it. That's our charge. Another way that you could say it is dedicate your lives to maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, what is this unity that we are to maintain? Well, look at our text. It's the unity of the Spirit, which means this unity is not some superficial, outward, ecumenical unity. It's not an organizational unity. It's an inward unity which comes from the reality that every Christian has the same Spirit of God sealing them. It's an internal unity. If if you're a Christian here, you have the Holy Spirit 
and every other Christian in the world has the same Spirit of God. We are united internally, not externally. And the implication of this means that the church, nor anyone in the church, can create unity. It's something that God creates. We are to maintain it. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. He says, For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. So it doesn't matter where you come from, what your ethnicity is, what your socioeconomic status is, those are the things that unite you. No, the Spirit of God unites us, not these external things. Now, around this unity, as our text says, is the bond of peace. Think of it like a belt. So how do you know how people are united? There's peace and love. And certainly all these other things that we just saw, humility and gentleness and patience. When you see peace, that's when you know people are united. Now the world has been striving for this, and we see it so clearly today. I don't know if our country has ever been so fractured or ununited. It probably has been, but at least in the last 50 years, this has been the most ununited we've been. And the world strives for it. They still want it. They still long for unity. They still long for peace. But they're looking for it in the wrong places. They're looking for it in the wrong places. What are they trying to unite over? External things. Superficial things. Like the color of their skin or where they were born or their socioeconomic status or what they deem to be their sexual orientation. That's what they've been uniting over, these superficial things. That's not true unity. Nor will it bring true peace. It'll probably perpetuate the disunity. John MacArthur once said that the world's unity is that of a bag holding together a bunch of marbles. External. Take away the bag, they all fall over the place. Eventually the bag's going to break too. But the church's unity is that of a metal shavings to a magnet. We're drawn together by the Holy Spirit who unites us. And keeps us and holds us firm together. That is our unity. Now as we move into verse 4, what we see is a Trinitarian definition to our unity as believers. Which manifests in seven united realities. So that was kind of, what the, what the heck did you just say? A Trinitarian definition. Our God that we worship, who exists, the God of the Bible, is a triune God. One God revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the ultimate unity. Perfectly united, as we saw in the text that Drew read for us. That was Jesus' prayer. So, there's a Trinitarian definition here that we see in our text. And Paul lays out seven uniting realities. And those seven uniting realities are united in body, in spirit, in hope, in Lord, in faith, in baptism, and in God. And all of these seven correspond to the triune God. Pretty cool. So, verse 4, if we look at verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Those are the uh, aspects of unity that are in the spirit. We're all members of this one body, which is the body of Christ. We, and we are all the temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He knits us together as members of this body. We also have one hope. And that hope was laid out for us in Ephesians 1. We read it, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is our hope, that we would be holy without sin, made perfect in the sight of God, having eradicated all the sin from our lives. That is our hope. We have the same hope in the same heaven. We all hope in the same heaven, with the same promise that we will be perfect, without sin, forever united with Christ our Savior. We all have the same hope in a resurrected body. And Christ was the first fruits of that. And this body is unperishable and without sin. That is our hope. We all hope in the same thing. 
Now in verse 5, we see the elements of unity that are in the Son. Read verse 5 with me. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We all have one Lord, Jesus Christ. And as salvation is by no other name and through no other person but the true Jesus Christ. So that means that somebody who doesn't believe in the true Jesus Christ, there's no way that they can have unity with us. There's one Lord. Which means we have no unity with Mormons, with Jehovah's Witnesses, because they do not worship the God who is revealed in the Scriptures. They do not worship the Christ that is revealed to us in the Scriptures. The Christ who is. We have no unity with them. Now we also have one faith. Now this can be hard to understand, but really what this means... One faith, it's in verse 5. In this context, it's the content of Scripture. We have one Scripture. We're all united in this, that we have one book that reveals to us a consistent truth. God's Word. And we have one Gospel. One content of the Gospel. There is no other Gospel. There is no other content of the Gospel. There's only one Gospel that saves and so if you preach a false gospel, there's no way that you can bring people into this body and have them be united with this body. Because there's only one gospel that saves. There's only one faith, one scripture. We have one scripture. It really is amazing. We also have one baptism. And we know we've been talking about baptism in the Lord's Supper the last few weeks. and So we know that our physical baptism, our water baptism, represents what happened to us when we were converted. We were baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's when we were regenerated. We can also say that was the effectual call when we were brought from death to life, darkness to light. But Paul is likely talking about our water baptism here. We have one water baptism, one baptism. And remember what baptism is for. We are publicly confessing our identity with and unity in Jesus Christ. And that baptism is an inauguration of our membership into Christ's body, his church. So we have one baptism. Finally, in verse 6, we see the elements of unity that are in the Father. Verse 6 says, One God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's where we see that our unity is absolutely a product of the fact that we worship a God who exists as a unity and a diversity. And that is something hard to comprehend. We don't quite comprehend it. That God is completely one, yet revealed in three persons. He's a diversity and a unity. And all of our unity comes from that. So we have one God, Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. He is the one who unites all things in him. So the next time you hear Christians say that the church needs to be united and come together in unity... You should think, well, we already have it. What we need to do is maintain it. That's what our text says. We maintain this unity. However, it's not maintained by doctrinal laxity or ecumenism. Basically, this idea that we just unite on the things that we can agree about. And it's this idea that all colors agree in the dark. Well, we have differences. We might believe different things about the Bible. So let's just turn the lights off so we can't see these differences. And then we can all just be united in our darkness and worship God in the dark. And that would be great, you know, for the sake of unity. And we hear that quite a bit, actually. But that's not the case. I have to be brief with this because we could go on for days. The rest of Ephesians 4 really addresses this issue. But there's one aspect of these seven elements. It's the one faith that we actually have to attain. So I've been saying this whole time that we have to maintain our unity. But now, Paul says, later on, we'll read it. There's one aspect of this that we have to attain our unity. And that is in faith. The one faith. And this makes sense. What's the one faith again? It's the scriptures. So when you are converted to Christ, you obviously don't know everything there is to know about the Bible. It's content that you have to learn and understand. So, we, as the body of Christ, united in Christ, united with the Spirit, 
Now we attain unity in the faith, which is in doctrine. So we will come together and we learn it and we study it and we grow in our knowledge of the scriptures. And there's nobody here that would say they know everything there is to know about the Bible. So we attain this unity in the faith. Now, let's actually read this. Look in your Bibles with me in chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, we see here that we are to attain this unity in the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Mature in this, grow in this, know this, know doctrine, love doctrine, study your Bible, know what the Bible says. And we attain unity that way, the unity of the faith. And why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. We want to mature and become adults. We don't want to stay children. We want to mature. How do we mature? By studying the scriptures. By knowing the scriptures. And what does the text actually say? Well, it actually says that he gave us people to teach us. To help us grow. He gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Leaders that God has called as a gift to the church to equip them. To Teach them in doctrine. That's why it's so important that we have a pastor, a shepherd, like Cody, who comes to us and teaches us from the Bible what we need so that we may attain the unity of the faith. So important. It's so important. So that we might not be tossed to and fro. And we see, unfortunately, churches who only go an inch deep And their leaders aren't feeding them the word. And they are tossed to and fro. And that's what happens. But no, we shouldn't be tossed to and fro. So circling back to my doctrinal laxity example, should we just turn the lights off so all the colors agree in the dark and then we can just be united as a church? No. There's no unity in that. We cannot attain unity in faith apart from doctrinal integrity. And those Christians who think unity is achieved by doctrinal superficiality and shallowness are gravely mistaken. But perpetuate the issue that they so desire to see resolved. They leave their congregations full of children who still need milk. And they're tossed to and fro. So as we near our rollout of membership at Harvest Plains Church. And our baptism service in September. We must realize and know these five elements that we looked at that define the church as we move forward. Again, like the coffee and Calvinism group. If you're going to be a part of the group, you've got to like coffee. You've got to like specialty coffee. If you're going to be part of Christ's church, you've got to be humble, gentle, patient, loving, and united. Now, I want to be clear, if you don't know Christ, if you're here this morning and you're visiting and you don't know Christ, you have no unity in the body. But you can have unity in this body. That calling that we looked at in the first verse, the calling to which you've been called to, I pray if you don't know Christ this morning that you hear that calling. And what is the content of this call? What are the words of this call? What is it saying? It's saying that you're a sinner, an enemy of God who has willingly turned your back on him and gone your own way, rebelled against God. You are 
gratifying the desires of your flesh. You're living for your own gain and not for God and not for the glory of God. And thus you deserve your just punishment for going your own way and living in opposition to the one who spoke you into existence. And that just penalty is eternity in hell. A conscious torment in hell. And it it is in proportion with your crime. That's what we deserve. That's what every single one of us in here deserves. Hell. Because we have all gone against God, our creator. But, but Christ, rich in mercy and love, he took on human flesh. He humbled himself like I talked about in Philippians 2. He humbled himself and willingly went to a cross. And on that cross, he took the sins of those who would believe in him on his body, and he faced the wrath of the Father in your place. And he was punished justly by God the Father in your place so that you would not have to face that punishment. And before he went to the cross, he lived a perfect life, obeyed the law perfectly, obeyed God perfectly, glorified God perfectly, lived the life that we could not live And so now, if you don't know Christ, you can know him in this moment. The Bible says that if you repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith and believe in him and trust him for salvation, you will be saved. He will forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. And then he will give you his spirit. And then you will have unity in this body. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. So I urge you, if you do not know Christ here, repent and believe. Turn away from your wicked life and turn to Christ and trust him for your salvation. He is a loving and gracious God. Again, as we see all who are called out of darkness to eternal life are sealed with the Holy Spirit and united to Christ's body, the church. And this church is... His body is defined, again, by humility, gentleness, patience, love, and unity. Let us all strive to walk worthy of this calling.